Welcome into another edition of the Hops and Spirits podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Green, and we are finishing off Flavorful February with a fun thing that we like to call Flight Night around here. But before we get to that, don't forget to check out our past episodes. We did how we learned how people make those crazy beers with all those uh, unique flavors like cereal and candy in them with Derek DeFranco from Mirror Twin. We learned about how you uh, how barrels change things with whiskey from the guys at Starlight Distillery and then how you turn beer into whiskey with the guys from Foundry Distilling. All those episodes are now available. And don't forget to follow us on all of our social media at Hop Spirits, all one word on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. But what we're here for tonight is a flight night with Urban Artifact to close out flavorful February, if I can say that 10 times fast. Uh, so who do we have with us? Well, from Urban Artifact, the co-owner, head of sales, Scotty Hunter. Hi, welcome, or welcome. Thanks for having me. Something like that. <laughs> we'll figure this all out. You know, it'll be all right. And part of our flight night crew is Kinsey Bernhardt, host of Boys Are From Mars and PorchDrinking.com writer and bartender at Gallant Fox in Louisville. Kinsey, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. And last but not least, Derek Young, creator of One Sip Beer Review. Derek, welcome. Thanks for having me. So now that we got the intros out of the way, I like to really get these hard questions. Uh, you know, I got to ask one tough question. So it's a fun icebreaker. I just uh, came up with this one like five minutes before we came on. And I think it's great. What is the emoji you use most on your phone? <laughs> PC version? It can be either. I, hey, we're, uh, we're, we're, we talk beer, so it can be anything. <laughs> no, nah, for me, it's probably like the, uh, the upside down smiley face. Just because if I don't have a real reaction to somebody, just like to throw that one in. <laughs> well, I feel like mine's a cheap answer because I, I work in social media, so I'm using emojis a lot on our posts. So it's, it's the, 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 the beard cheersing emoji. But that's because it's an easy one to use and friendly one on your, you know, social media for beer. And I like that one to use a lot in general. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing, Kenzie. I, I think every uh, once a beer review post that I have, it has at least one of the cheers emojis on there. I was going to say, I, I go back and forth because, you know, we talk uh, spirits and, and uh, hops on, on this. Uh, have, have the nice little uh, whiskey glass, the cheersing, but I think I probably honestly use the, the side, like sideways laughing, laughing emoji a lot. I just realized oh, yeah. that I, mm -hmm. I think I do that way too much because uh, my phone now I've, I've upgraded to an iPhone. So it just automatically when I type ha ha, it goes right to that. <laughs> so. Well, that's a good thing you said that there was an article that came out this week that like the regular laughing emoji is apparently not cool anymore. <laughs> Yeah, no, I it's Google it. You can't use that one because I guess whatever like the the younger generation they use instead of the laughing one they use the dead emoji like I'm dying, I'm dead. I I read that story this week and I was like, are we really at that point where a certain emoji is not cool anymore? But I guess we are. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see it. I just I'm just happy I might be cool, so that works for me. <laughs> I've given up long ago. <laughs> well for so so we can get this this thing rolling scotty uh how did you guys uh start urban artifact and when did you get started because you guys have been around five six years now yeah it'll be six years in april and uh there's a it, that can be a long long answer to unpack <laughs> um <clears throat> i'll try to do the abbreviated version so uh there's there's three 
three partners, myself, Brett and Scott Hand. Uh, and me and Brett went to college together at Ohio University, both studied chemical engineering. That's where we met. Uh, we started a homebrew club there that before the pandemic was still going, no idea right now. Uh, obviously some of those things are, you know, didn't happen, I'm sure. And we had talked quite a bit uh, after we graduated and we got into industry about, you know, wouldn't it be cool to start something. And it wasn't until probably a year after graduation that we really started to get serious and start to work on different ideas and play around with things and start to put together like a business plan. Uh, and we played with different ideas, whether it was lager only or uh, craft distilleries we were talking about, because we're talking, you know, at this point, nine, eight, nine, ten years ago that we were, you know, having these discussions. So the, the landscape was very different. All those were uh, viable options. Uh, our love, though, really was sour beer. And Brett developed the the what, what I refer to as the modified sour mash that we use today. And once he did we that was that was our laser focus uh because in our minds sour beer was malt traditionally brewed you know asian oak so you just couldn't you need so much working capital get to get that going that we we didn't think it was feasible uh so if we had that quicker process that we could you know run in tandem with the the barrel program and keep things moving then we thought that was you know a good opportunity there so you know, fast forward to we've been working on this stuff a lot. Uh, Brett and his wife were going to hike the entire Appalachian Trail from uh, they were doing the route from Maine down to Georgia, kind of the opposite that most people do. And the plan was once they were done with that, they would come back. Uh, we would start fundraising and, you know, work to get our brewery off the ground. Well, about and this really gets fuzzy here, but, you know, let's let's say six weeks into the trail. It wasn't very long. Uh, I think Brett and Steph were in the like New England region, like New Hampshire or Boston area or something like that. Um, we get put in contact through a mutual friend with our now partner, Scott Hand. He had a project that he's working on and one of his partners backed out two days before loan signing with a bunch of equity and he was supposed to handle the brewing side uh, because Brett and myself had already worked out our business plan in terms of the brewing side of things and we're, we're prepared. We met with Scott, hit it off. We both loved what each, each of us were bringing to the table and where, what our visions were uh, for, for the concept. So Scott is much more on the music side of things. You know, typically we'd have live music every night and, you know, he didn't want to, he wasn't trying to be a brewer. Like, <laughs> There's, there's, there's no mistaking that. So uh, it was a good, a good division in that sense. And I met with him on a Sunday by that following Tuesday, Brett and Stephanie had gotten off the trail and flew back to Cincinnati. And then within two weeks from that, we had signed a SBA loan to purchase our property, fund the project and uh, essentially married each other. So, yeah, that's That's crazy. So you really didn't even, did you even know Scott before that? No, no, I literally, I met him at a coffee shop on a Sunday and, uh, you know, we, we met a number of times, you know, in between that ahead of time, just to kind of work through some things. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was very much, you know, kind of a leap of faith, so to speak, as much as, as much as I think there is one. That, that is amazing. That's a, that's a great story. And obviously you guys ended up focusing on, uh, fruit ales and, and sours. And our, our very first one, um, is the spyglass that we'll yep. be trying tonight. Uh, it is a lemon lime tart. Can you talk a little bit about it? 
Yeah, so it's it's a fairly new product for us. Uh, it is a year-round product. Uh, so it's kind of the antithesis to the gadget, which we'll try later in the show, with it being low ABV, uh, citrus flavors, you know, very bright, light, easy drinking, more that lawnmower type of beer. And it's kind of the, you know, the beer equivalent to, to Sprite. Um, you know, a lot of times we, we pull flavor concepts well, we pull, I mean, we use all fruits that we can, especially mm-hmm. the ones that, that, that show through well. Um, but it was a way to get something that we could have in our portfolio that was sessionable, lower ABV, and a little more price conscious for, for what our brand is. Not that it's cheap by any means. Um, and citrus is one of those fruits where you can do something where it can be loud, it can be bright, and really have that intensity that we want, but not break the bank. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed just getting the start on it. And uh, um, it's, it's, it is a nice little refreshing drink. And it's only only 4.7% <laughs> alcohol because uh, that, that'll make sense here for folks once we get up to the gadget. Uh, but, but I also love because you guys use what lemon, uh, 66 pounds of lime, 50 pounds of lemon zest in each batch. That, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, that's, those are small quantities relatively for, for what we do beer wise. And, you know, that's, that's one thing that we always like to do is, is have transparency with, uh, with our beer and our labels and uh, spell out what, what we put in. Uh, it's not required by the government. And most people would be shocked by how little the government actually requires you to disclose to customers. So uh, it's something that we're just, we're big on, we're big on honesty and transparency. Well, and, and making good beer. <laughs> <laughs> what does everyone think? Yeah, I'm obviously pretty familiar with your beers and I haven't had Spyglass yet. And um, it's, you guys do, oh, I'm drawing a blank. What's your, just your key lime goes so that you guys. Key punch. Key punch. So this is a nice kind of twist on that one. And it's, like you said, it's very, that, that lawnmower beer is probably one of the best descriptions you can, you can <laughs> give this beer. Yeah, I think the, the fun you can look at like key punches, a key lime goes, it comes out in the summer, tasting that side by side with spyglass and those, the difference in lime flavors, I think mm-hmm. really is showcased there where I think for a lot of people in the U S they don't really understand the difference in what key lime brings versus your, your standard Persian or table lime. So um, I'm glad, glad you brought that up, Kinsey. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge sour fan. So I mean, this thing is perfect. Like you said, it's it's light. You know, it's not heavy on your stomach like some of the sours are. Um, so yeah, it's it's something that you could definitely drink all day. Yeah, and I was gonna say, always one thing that I've, I've enjoyed about urban urban artifacts since I kind of stumbled upon y'all uh, this summer, or maybe early in the pandemic. I'm not not sure. It's all hazy now. Uh, <laughs> it feels like it's gone on forever. <laughs> um, it's just how how well you guys put put flavors together because sometimes with sours you might only be able to drink one or a fruit of ale you can only drink one but um, for for y'all I always feel like I can have a couple you know what I mean and and it not be overwhelming on the taste buds either but in a good way because you, you still get all the taste but it's not like just an explosion of something weird and then you're kind of done for the rest of the day yeah I think that really for, for me it speaks to the the fermentation that that natural souring process that we do uh with our house culture and then real ingredients 
you know, no flavors, no extracts. We're not, we're not back sweetening with a bunch of lactose, which is quite common uh, at this point. You know, I think that that adds to palate fatigue because how, how often can you drink like, you know, it's essentially like sugar syrup. Like it's, they get like just so rich and heavy that, uh, you know, it's not much you can, you can't pound a ton of those. At least I can't, like, I know some people love that stuff, like, but I'm not sitting here drinking like regular Cokes on the regular. One of the questions I have for you guys is why did you guys feel it was super important to um, use real fruit puree, knowing that it's going to be a lot more time consuming to use, probably a little bit more money financially, just because you are buying the real thing and it takes more, um, you know, labor costs as well. So why was it important to actually use real fruits and real, real fruit puree? Jeez, tongue, tongue twister. (laughs) Yeah. So we, I mean, early on, like before we started actually even brewing, we were building out, we looked at different uh, flavorings, natural flavorings and different, different options, but ultimately nothing could really bring to the table what real fruit does. So, you know, some of the, where those, where those natural, I kind of use quotes now, (laughs) uh, natural flavors shine is really just kind of top end uh, on the, on the nose. There's not a ton on the palate, you don't you don't have any of the color that you get with the real fruit. Um, so, and, and it's, you know, it's also, it's a value thing. So like, you know, we don't spend a ton of money on, you know, marketing and we don't spend a ton of money. Like our sales force is still pretty darn small. Um, you know, what, what we do is we provide the highest quality beer we can to consumers. So for that, it is, it's real fruit. And, um, you know, I think we, in terms of, ingredient costs probably have the highest ingredients cost per like cost out per you know cost per ounce than mm-hmm. any other brewery that I that I'm aware of um honestly in the country. But I mean it comes through I mean you can tell a difference and, and you, you touched on this a little earlier kind of when you're talking about it where you guys kind of perfected the taste because I was reading something where you guys uh when you kind of were first doing some stuff, people might've said it was a little too, too getting at you a little too sour. How did that work? And then, cause this is, I feel like where people don't realize how much science goes into beer. Um, and cause you guys kind of toned it back a little bit to find the sweet spot. Yes and no. So that's, that's actually the, that's actually kind of a funny thing. So we thought the market was further ahead than it was when we opened in terms of taste preferences and it was, it was a lot bigger shock to customers than we expected in terms of just their familiarity with sour beer. So originally what we did is we hit acidity levels or pH that we thought tasted best, that was best for the product. Uh, we found that that wasn't uh, maybe as well received as we expected. So we did, we did kind of pull things back a little bit in terms of that pH and acidity, but over time, we've pushed them back down to where we ideally want them and nobody's noticed like the, it's just like been small incremental steps along the way for that, that pH and that acidity. And, you know, in general, like going from the homebrew scale that we did to a 30 barrel system, like the beer got the fermentation got better. Like there was stuff that we did learn um, all just is just one of those things that you were going to have to do no matter, no matter what we could have, you know, Brett, my partner has, um, 
experience in grain milling operations. He's worked in distilleries, wineries, things like that. But no matter what, like scaling those type of recipes up to the, that whole new system, that whole new equipment was always going to have some amount of a learning curve. If that answered your question. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it did because I, I just always find it fascinating uh, talking to, to folks, uh, you know, especially y'all have engineering backgrounds. Uh, a lot of the, the guys and gals I talked to in the, the whiskey business all seem now to come from an engineering background of some sort. Um, and, and they're putting those skills to use that way. And it just, it always just kind of blows my mind how much science goes into it. Cause you guys are working with, in a sense, bacteria. <laughs> Yeah. Like, like it just, when you hear it put that way, it just kind of go, you go, wait, what? Yeah, no, I mean, and that's, that's, that's a big thing for us is it, it kind of relates to what Kinsey was asking in terms of why, why real fruit, it, you know, could be more difficult. Um, you know, we, we ask more like, why don't people, or why can't we do something like that? And, and then fight try to figure out the answer. Cause a lot of times what we find out is it's just like, old tradition that really has no basis and you know when we talk about fruit like most breweries they just order fruit aseptic purees from Oregon fruit we use Oregon fruit for a little bit but really not much it might be five percent of our fruit usage comes from there um, we buy mostly in, in drums um, so we're buying 55 gallon drums instead of uh, the, I think they're like 15, 20 pound, uh, like little boxes. Yeah. Um, and we, and we have a process piece of processing equipment that actually went in with our new expansion. That's, we literally call a fruit cooker. It's, it's there to pasteurize our fruit and get it to fermenters. So um, we now have a three vessel system and, and one of those vessels is a fruit cooker. You mentioned earlier, sorry, Jonathan, about perfect, perfecting the pH, um, which I don't think a lot of people understand is very important when it comes to sour beers. You have a kind of limited number you want to stay in between. And the three that we're tasting tonight are 3.2, 3.4, and 3.5 pH. So how did you guys come to find the perfect pH level for each of these beers? Was it just practicing or did you just get lucky on some of them? So talk about perfecting the pH levels. No, no, definitely trial and error and tasting things. And, you know, it's, so one of the things that, that would happen in that process would be dosing things, like getting things where we think it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And then also doing acid additions um, and basically tempering those things and kind of tasting those with the varied, various acid levels with, with a food grade acid addition, um, just to make sure that it's where we think it really needs to be. And then, you know, set that fermentation profile for that on and on. Did you ever have a beer that was like 3.2 pH and you didn't like it and then you brought it up to like 3.4 and then you realized like, hey, this is it, let's not change it? Yeah, it usually goes the opposite way though. It's usually okay, lower. Yeah, being a little, a little more tart usually tends to, tends to work better. Um, really uh, at this point, I'm trying to think if there's anything I don't know if we make anything at this point that's in that higher than 3.5 in terms of pH. So like, and for people that are listening, most, most beer is 4.3 in terms of the pH. And since it's a logarithmic scale, it, it changes exponentially. So 4.3 to 3.5 or 3.2, doesn't sound like a lot, but really it is, it's pretty, pretty significant. 
And then for our second one, we have the, the pinwheel, which is an orange gosa uh, made with, uh, it's 4.5% alcohol uh, by volume, 500 pounds of oranges, a pound of coriander, and five grams of vanilla beans per batch. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the pinwheel. Yeah, so goza was always a style that we intended to have, and this is our spring seasonal for that line. So we do a line of, of fruited gozas. Uh, we originally started with a just straight traditional goza as well when we first opened up. And uh, with the goza, you've got the this beautiful wheat backbone uh, spiced with coriander and sea salt. So you get a little bit of that salinity, you get that kind of fruitiness from the coriander. It just, it, it lends itself so well to fruit additions. Um, and you pointed out the vanilla bean, which is, I think, you know, super, super interesting and, and important to point out. Um, I always, I always have people think in terms of like baking and, and cooking. If you're making something sweet, you typically add some vanilla to kind of round out and punch up those fruity notes, <clears throat> excuse me, those fruity notes, those fruity flavors. And it works the same way in beer. So there's certain, certain fruits that we don't add vanilla to just because they don't need it. They, they have enough, enough on their own. But I would say probably 75% of the fruit beers that we make have some amount of vanilla bean uh, added as well. And it's not something that you really necessarily pick up. Like some people that have like really maybe sensitive palates to like vanilla bean uh, or really, really, really good palates. Like I, I'm not one of them. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll pick that up independently without, you know, being told. Um, but it adds a really nice depth of character. Um, and in, in the pinwheel specifically, this is one that like always kind of hurts my soul a little bit. Uh, so it used to be a kumquat goza. And if you're not familiar with the kumquat, it's, they're about quarter size, little, little bits of citrus. They, 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 they taste similar to an orange. Uh, they are orange, um, but it's very tropical. It's, it's a very different flavor profile. Uh, and it's the only... I believe it's the only citrus that you eat the, the rind with. Um, so you just literally you pop it in your mouth. They're super tasty, very tart. So, so again, it works well with the sour beer. But and now that's, we're probably going back three years now, um, the, the crop, kumquat crops got decimated and they've just never recovered. It was one of those, I think maybe it was like tropical storms around Florida area. Um, so we just, we literally can no longer source kumquats in either good enough quality or in an economical manner. Yeah. I remember when you changed it, that the time when you changed it from the, the kumquat to the orange and people were pretty upset <laughs> without yeah. knowing the reason behind it. Yeah. I mean, you try to explain things like that, but ultimately, you know, you're only going to get that across to so many people. Yeah. To me, like as soon as I tasted this, it, it just brought back some childhood memories. Kind of tastes like Fruit Loops or like uh, Fruity Pebbles a little bit. Yeah, I get that. I get that a lot from from citrus and beers, uh, especially that nose. Um, like when we do like key punch in the summertime, Ooh. especially those limes, and, and those are getting that that those are getting dosed into the tank. It, it, you think Fruity Pebbles immediately, right? It's very good. Yeah, it, it, it's, I don't know if I've had an orange gosa. I've had a lot of orange wheat beers, but I don't know if I've ever had one in a, you know, a sour style. And it, 
it works well. And I'll be honest, I swear I picked up the vanilla note right at the beginning. Haven't really gotten it since, uh, but but I, I feel like I got a little bit. And I don't know if that's because I've tasted enough bourbon here recently or, or what. But but no, this is nice. And this is only a seasonal in the spring. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So that that spring seasonal for beer, which really means colder months that nobody wants to sell anything else in <laughs> because it's just that time of year. And this, you know, Key Punch, Key Punch started kind of the fruited goes a line for us and really, really took off. But this is where we really started to, excuse me, figure out where sour beer is still a bit of a foreign concept to people. But when you add, you add fruit, it kind of helps make sense of it to people, to some people, because there's an expectation of acidity when you think of, you know, biting into an orange. So it made things a little bit easier, I think, for people to kind of wrap their heads around as they're starting to get into sour beers. So my question has to do with the, the names of the two beers that we've just tasted, Spyglass and Pinwheel, and the characters along with them. Um, one of them, obviously, a Spyglass is a tool used. And then it says Pinwheel um, symbolizes turning your luck around. So talk about how you guys go about naming these and if there's meaning behind the names as well. Sorry, I was muted. I was trying to not to cough as I'm uh, clearing my throat. Anyway, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. The, the little Easter egg, and it's not kind of an Easter egg. So all of our names are named after things that used to be more commonplace and have since become essentially artifacts in, in the kind of, you know, I don't know what society today. So, you know, some, some are a lot more on the nose in terms of you know, being artifacts and then some are a little looser. Um, but, you know, you think of pinwheel, like the, the, the child's toy that, yeah, I'm sure some, some families and toddlers, you know, still <laughs> run around with those, but for the most part, kids got their, you know, no uh, face stuffed in an iPad most of the time. So um, that's, that's how the naming, that's what the naming scheme is on a, like a very high level. Uh, and then there's, there's like little branches within that of like, if it's a Goza, if it's a year-round product, if it's a seasonal Midwest fruit tart, if it's a barrel-aged product, um, there's those different kind of roads that the, that that naming scheme travels down. You mentioned them being old-school gadget, and now my mind is blown because I get it. <laughs> I don't think I ever made that connection, and now I did, mm -hmm. and I'm like, wow, it's obviously very smart marketing and branding and um, very clever as well. It's genius. <laughs> never it, never that never crossed my mind and as soon as you said that i went ah, i'm an idiot <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where like when you have one of those you kind of have that that piece to guide you 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 might not have recognized it but when you see the names and and you have that sense and that feel that they do in some way fit together it doesn't have to you know hit you across the face and i think that's that's the beauty of it mm-hmm Oh. all right we're good um trying not to knock everything over so on to our third one which kenzie kind of talked a little bit about is the gadget which is a raspberry and blackberry midwest fruit tart now this guy comes in at eight percent alcohol by volume uh and it features um 1200 pounds of oregon blackberries 1200 pounds of 
Oregon raspberries and 30 grams of vanilla beans per batch. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So, okay. There's, there, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, we'll start with what is a Midwest fruit tart? So this was a style that we coined to better quantify what we're doing beer wise. Uh, so after the, the fruity gozas, we, you know, we started playing with fruit and doing more fruit beers, fruited sour beers, that is. And the question we were asking ourselves are why, why do none of the fruit beers on the market really taste like the fruit that they say? Like everything's so faint, nothing, you know, if I, I buy a raspberry beer, I have to like search for raspberry. Like, why is that a thing? So, uh, you know, our hypothesis was just people aren't using enough and we didn't really know why, but uh, we tried it. The, the results were fantastic. Uh, people loved it and we figured out, okay, we, we want to do this. We'll figure out what we need to charge. And if people really enjoy it as much as we think they, they have and, and will, you know, they'll be willing to pay because I don't know, that's, it's, it's not really like a unique concept, a unique thought, but because it's applied across a lot of consumer packaged goods, um, it just hadn't really been applied to beer in, in that same manner, like craft, you know, in general, you know, better, better quality ingredients than, than macro lagers. But um, fruit beer, I think, was really untouched in that in that realm. Yeah, and it comes in a very nice nice color, a little different than, than the other other two for <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, oh yeah, get, getting back to kind of like the etymology of it, um, we instead of we were using terminology like sour bomb and things like that, and we really wanted to get something that would allow people to try the beer and not necessarily have like preconceived notions about what it was going to be so that's why you don't see the term sour in there at all it's it's a fruit tart because the fruit is kind of the dominant thing and it does you know it does have acidity so that's that tart and you know given the region that we are was was the, the midwest moniker is something that you tend to see with with beer styles that stick uh long term yeah it, it is very flavorful and it might no, I'm going to say it. it's my favorite beer y'all do. Absolutely. Awesome. Hands down. It is absolutely delicious. And I also just enjoy being a guy that gets a beer that always looks like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so like the, the quick, like what is Midwest fruit tart though? I, I think I avoided that. I didn't avoid that. I forgot about it, but heavily fruited, nice, clean acidity, higher ABV. So, you know, that's why that 8%, you know, most of them around 8% when we do, rare and exotic fruits, those tend to get bumped up in that 10% range uh, and, and gadgets on the lower end because raspberries are, are pretty loud fruits on their own. Um, but anywhere from like 2.45 or 2.5 uh, pounds to three pounds of fruit per gallon for, for a Midwest fruit tart, which is insane for most people. It, like other breweries are fruiting at like half a pound per gallon. Like people don't do what we do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just looking at the back of your cane. You're saying 1200 pounds of blackberries, 1200 pounds of raspberries. Yeah. That's a lot of fruit right there. So is this, I guess, would you consider this, I know you said this isn't a sour, it's a fruit ale, but would this be kind of along the lines of an imperial sour? I mean, that's some terminology that definitely gets thrown around. I think the, the issue and the reason why we don't use that term a lot is that that sour is not very well defined it, it's 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 almost trying to like take like i don't know dozens of styles of beer and put it under one umbrella it's like 
if you look at like how how spread out IPA is at this point, um, that's the same thing that we should see used in sour, but it really never gets that much of it, that that much attention, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Is this the most fruit that you all have in any of your all's beers? Oh no, not even close. <laughs> <laughs> what one is that? Uh, so we have a a new product line that's going to be coming out in March called Astronaut Food. And so these are, these are beers with uh, freeze-dried fruit. And what that does is it allows us to pack even more fruit uh, into the beer than we could otherwise, because you pull out all that, uh, all that water content, because that's really, that becomes the limiting factor at a point uh, with how much fruit you can put in there. And the equivalent fruit rate is about 11 pounds per gallon. So yeah. almost you, all were, you were all just in Forbes about that, correct? Yeah. Yeah. They, they gave us a little write up for that. Um, to, Pretty cool. Showcase that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that, that is awesome. Uh, Cause what, what made you guys end up just picking fruit, fruited tart ales and, and, and kind of sours and ghost styles? Like, why did you pinpoint that? Obviously I know you love them, uh, but I feel like when you guys launched even five, six years ago, that, that wasn't, the style in terms of what everyone was going after now nowadays I, I like i'm i'm a huge fan been a fan for a while but um even i still don't see a ton of them out there when you go to certain breweries yeah so we we're of the thought that you do one thing and do it really well so that's why you don't see anything that's not sour uh, i think that helps from a, a consumer experience too because you know, if, if you like one of our beers, you know, say you pick up the gadget and you love it uh, and you pick up something else, you're not going to be that surprised. You know, you have, you know what to expect. It's going to be a tart beer. Generally, it's going to be fruited. Uh, so it, it helps with that expectation and that consumer education. It's not going from an IPA to a sour and somebody absolutely hitting and potentially damaging their view of your brain just because, you know, no, no, no not trying to talk down to anybody, but some, we all do it. You pick up something because you know a brand name and you don't necessarily look at everything about it. And then all of a sudden, oh, I don't like this style. And, you know, it could be detrimental to the brand. Mm -hmm. right. um, and then I, we won't hide behind it. You know, we wanted to do sours and fruited sours were what, sell, what was selling. You know, that's what people enjoyed. And ultimately, like, yeah, we, we brew some stuff and there's some passion projects that get thrown in there, but like, it's a business, right? So mm -hmm. if people aren't drinking it, it doesn't matter how much I love it or Brett loves it or Scott loves it, because if people don't buy it and drink it, we ain't going to be around long enough. <laughs> That's very true. Right. What's one beer you guys, you three have, have brewed and loved, but your customers didn't really um, like as much as you thought they would? Oh, I, I feel like the, the, the easy uh is the you know saison mixed culture any any sort of brett beers that's i think i could write a general like template for for articles of new breweries opening and part of that would be oh yeah we're going to do farmhouse sales like right. that's literally every this brewery is going to open somewhere at this point in time is going to have that so um you know i would love to see stuff like that because it can be so you know, crisp and refreshing mm -hmm. and the way the, we haven't even scratched, we never got a chance to really scratch the surface of like, Brett produces much different uh, compounds than, you know, standard brewer's yeast. 
And then if you add an acidic environment, it can produce even wildly different uh, compounds there. So, you know, stuff like that, I would love to see played with, but like, ultimately it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work in the market. It's not, it's not who our brand is. If we wanted to be a, you know, 500 barrel a year brewery and just be a little brew pub, then yeah, yeah, we could, we could probably do that and make it work, but um, that's, that's, that's not us. What, what urban artifact 2.0 somewhere, right? <laughs> what yeast are you guys typically using in your, in your beers? Uh, so we don't have a single yeast. I, that's something that we definitely do different than other breweries as well is, is we'll fit yeast to the, the end fruit to try to showcase mm -hmm. it uh, as best as possible. Um, there will be some tweaks on the malt, uh, malt background, but for the most part that, that stays semi-similar. It's, it's, you know, the fruits, the fruit and the, the fruit and the fermentation are what kind of drive the flavor. Right. And that's where we want to, where we want to showcase. So, um, you know, I'm outdated in, in my, my knowledge of the yeast bank that's kept, but uh, I can tell you our, our house lacto is, is used for souring across all of our beers. And then uh, I know that a lot, a lot of our, especially fruit tarts have been moved over to the Quebec yeast, uh, that Norwegian farmhouse, because mm -hmm. it, it, it rips, it, it ferments, you know, not, pretty warm, quite yeah. honestly. Um, and then it, it hasn't had any issue, you know, because the way we do fermentation is we, you know, you have your your malt fermentation that goes for a couple of days and then we get to fruiting. Um, and then that's another fermentation that gets ripping as well after after a couple of days uh, before we mature and then package. Lately, I've had some of your all's uh, Epicurean series. And uh, the last one I had was the peanut butter and raspberry jelly, which was nice. Uh, but I know you all have kind of experimented with some other flavors. Um, I had one that was, I think it was a spicy pickle. <laughs> uh, so is that more of y'all's like experimental small batch type beers? Yeah. So we, we kind of, the Epicurean line is either model after food concepts or, or meant to be paired with food. So, you know, there's not a lot of uh, a beer pairing that, that, that hits the, the culinary world. And that's kind of like our, uh, our reaching to try to try to push that a little bit more. And it does work. Uh, you know, I've done, I don't know how many beer pairing dinners with our beer and, and really shocked and surprised people who wouldn't normally drink sour beer. Uh, because when you have that acid component, you can actually really balance against a, a dish. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a la wine. So um, that's, that's kind of our homage there. Uh, yeah. We do some, some more out there concepts with, with that Epicure in line, but like we don't uh, spicy pickle, notwithstanding uh, because pickle beer is wild. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering we, if the pickle beer was going to be brought up on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, but we, we scale the productions appropriately for, for, you know, where something could fit in the market. You know, we're fortunate at this point to be, to be large enough and have a large enough distribution footprint that we can, we can do some things that, you know, we couldn't do two, three, four years ago because we wouldn't necessarily get to enough of those right customers uh, that would enjoy and appreciate that. Yeah. I think I was just searching through Instagram uh, earlier today and I saw that you all did one that was like, uh, I think it was bread pudding. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I, you never heard of that kind of flavor in a, for a beer. Um, so it's pretty intriguing. 
Yeah, and and that and that program really got honed from our with within with our variant program. So like we have a generally once a month we have a new Midwest fruit tart, new fruit or fruit combination gets released. Uh, but we'll also do variants of that where it'll get dosed with some additional ingredients. And you know I think that's been going on for probably about four years at this point. Okay. And that allowed our brewers to really test things and hone in on quantities and, and things like that. So the, the Epicurean program on a larger scale, I think is only about two years old now. Okay. Um, so by the time we were ready to scale that up from, you know, just a couple kegs into, you know, 60 barrel batches, um, we already kind of knew what, what spices we needed to use and what quantities. And, and that's, that's super important, especially because, you know, vanilla bean was for a long time incredibly expensive. It still is fairly expensive. Um, but that's another one where, uh, again, there was some other natural disaster that, <laughs> that just wiped out uh, all the crops of vanilla beans. And it's only really this year that we're starting to see that price kind of come back down and start to make its way towards, you know, like 2015, 2016 levels uh, of price. Yeah, but vanilla extract, my wife bakes. I bought a little bottle about that big and about had a heart attack for like $15. I was like, what are you putting in the cookies? They're good well, cookies. Well, you bought the good but- stuff. But yeah, well, that was about all I had. Because, but I was like, "Oh my goodness, it's this big, and that's expensive." But it tastes good, so I can't can't complain. <laughs> Scotty, one of the questions you know I have, I guess, is what has been the hardest fruit you guys have used in a beer? I know you've used bananas, um, some kind of crazy ones you really wouldn't think of. What has been the hardest one um, that you've put into your beer? Uh, hard in what way? either the, you know, the, the processing of it, getting it to the puree or whatever form you needed it. Plus, you know, it just didn't come out right the first time and you had to fix it or um, one that you did and you're like, we'll never do this in a beer again. It was way too difficult. Uh, okay. There's a couple, there's a couple answers to that question, I think. So yeah, early on, again, scale, scale is important. Um, when we first did key punch, that was probably the worst, the worst beer to do because we couldn't necessarily source uh, key lime puree like we can today. Uh, so we, we had to buy fresh fruit and process it ourselves. So uh, mm-hmm. the very first year we, we zested to wait, hold on 500 pounds of key limes, uh, which is, you know, or no, 200 pounds, which is like 5,000 limes. I, I need to practice the story apparently. So I'm forgetting, <laughs> but um, you know, that was just for a 60 barrel batch the next year. We, uh, we, we got mandolins and, and that process was a little bit quicker to mandolin those and then dose them into, uh, into the fermenter. But, you know, we're still talking about days and days of multiple people processing fruit. So anything, anything early on was, was, was difficult for us uh, to a degree, excuse me, just because getting, it, it, it was not a normal thing to source. And in this, in the quantities that we were trying to source, it made it difficult. Um, you know, another one that I won't say it didn't, I didn't have expectations for how it would turn out, but, but durian got used, uh, in our beers before on, on the pilot scale. And so are you guys familiar at all with durian? Mm -hmm. The name sounds familiar. I'm not remembering what kind of fruit it is. Uh, look it up, look it up. It's (laughs) so it's, it's, I can't remember where somewhere in Asia, it's actually bought banned from public because of how offensive it is in terms of its smell. <laughs> yes. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's also known as the king fruit. So we had a we had a brewing intern, and we always let them bu- uh, brew something on the pilot scale, <laughs> and that was what he wanted to do was a durian beer, and we're like, okay, fine, you can do this, but we're also gonna have to like portion out a couple of these kegs and do some variants because like two barrels of durian beer could could last quite a long time. Um, it's it's weird. It, it smells weird. It's got a weird texture. Some people really love the flavor. It's like that kind of like that Limburger uh, cheese type of scenario, I think is a, it's like a good comparison. So um, that that's one where low expectations, it, it once fermented much better. Um, but I was, I was terrified. I thought that beer was just going to be horrific. After the Wikipedia article on it, it's, why does this beer smell so terrible? The words, the world's smelliest snack, smelly, but incredibly nutritious. <laughs> so I, c- I couldn't imagine that brew day or that, that day where you first uh, uh, used it probably didn't smell so, smell so good in the brew house. No, I, I tasted it and spit it out. I couldn't even, <laughs> it's like slimy at the same time. It's, it, it's all the things. So like, it's, you should try it once. Like it should be experienced just to know that like those things exist and it's classified as fruit. I'd give it a review. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that would be uh, quite entertaining. <laughs> I was going to say like piggybacking on that. Is there anything you haven't used yet? That's like on uh, your wish list. Oh yeah. There's, there's, there's a huge thing, a huge whistlet. Well, a huge wish list, excuse me. And it really is, we can't necessarily get our hands on certain things that we want to use. Um, you know, we've been fortunate because, because of our relationships and the amount of fruit that we buy that we get access to things that most other breweries don't even think of. Um, but yeah, it's, it's more about, it's more about having access. So uh, fruits from across across the world that just aren't necessarily brought into the U.S. Are, are things that you know we just we love to play with, but we 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 haven't got a chance to. What's what's the most common fruit that you use? It's like I set you up for this, so uh, I missed the point earlier about the gadget. So so berries, uh, raspberries and blackberries, yeah. and to kind of give you an idea of of the degree that we use them, uh, so we account for 0.2% of the entire blackberry market in the U S and 0.1% of the entire raspberry market in the U S. Okay. That's, that's how many berries we buy and uh, ferment. Yeah. That, that, that's impressive. That, that is, that's kind of crazy when you think about how many ber- berries that that would be, <laughs> uh, you know, cause I mean, they're at the grocery stores they're everywhere. So you guys are, that's a lot. Exactly. Like it's gotten to the point where, our, one of our brokers that works directly with farmers is working with those farmers to plant crops specifically for us. Like, and where it gets cool is more about like specific varietals of berries. We're like, plant this, we'll buy it. Just plant it. That's all you got to do. Yeah, that, that, that's pretty impressive. Um, well, one question I, I did want to ask is obviously your location is really cool. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how that came to be? Because it's a, a historic church in Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I mentioned my other partner, Scott Hand. Uh, he is uh, an architect, so he loves architecture, <laughs> old buildings. And originally he was looking, if people are familiar, at the old Jackson Brewery. Uh, it's called 
referred to as the Metal Blast building here in Cincinnati. It's actually not too far off from uh, Rheingeis if you just kind of head north and, and west a little bit. Uh, beautiful, beautiful old building. It, it makes our campus look small because the building itself is about 60,000 square feet. Um, but the thing of it was, the guy that owned it did not want to get it, did not want to repair the building to where we could just move in. Um, it was, there was a leaky roof and, you know, we were getting a SBA loan to, to fund the project and uh, no bank was going to give us money for a building to do extensive renovation and rehab to a building that we weren't even going to own. Um, and so that, that building is still vacant to this day, but uh, it was, it was a little bit of, I guess, happenstance that the property we in, are in now came on the market and it was actually listed individually. So there's a church rectory and gymnasium. Um, we offered all the whole on the whole parcel and it wouldn't have made sense to split up anyway. I, it was like wishful thinking that would have worked um, because it fit what we wanted to do. We had, we had the church that could house the tap room and live performances. Uh, we had the gymnasium that could house the brewery and, and though you know, I know people love seeing tanks and seeing the stainless tanks when they go to a brewery tap room, but like <laughs> it's, it's even harder to manage. Um, and it, it, it helps with production to not have those two facilities linked and gives us just more workable space. Um, and then we've used it to a lesser degree, but you know, we're continually growing into it. Uh, the rectory serves as like office space and some random storage. There's a pizza kitchen in there that services the parcel as well. Um, and we're really only using the, the first floor ourselves, uh, but we've had tenant local nonprofits in there as tenants over the years. Um, and, you know, we didn't, we didn't make a ton of money on them. You know, it was more of those, like, you know, this is kind of putting something there that's cool for the community and, you know, helping, you know, occupy the space a little bit. Yeah, that, that, that is awesome. And, and for those that want to find urban artifact, uh, you guys are available in a decent amount of states, right? Yeah, with uh, with direct shipping and distribution, it is twenty states actually. Oh wow! So yeah. so you, you all have have grown since I remember looking that up up recently. Yeah, it's uh we it's 12, 12 states with traditional distribution. Uh, New Hampshire and PA just got going this year, and those will probably be the uh, the only states that we uh, that we launched this year. Uh, so there's, you know, eight different states that we direct to consumership that we don't, or in addition to our distribution footprint. Was that and, something you guys started doing because of the pandemic or was that always the plan to do direct consumer shipping? Uh, the pandemic sped it up <laughs> for sure, but it was something that we had had an eye on. It was just never, it was one of those things where we would talk about it and we wouldn't necessarily like push on it because there wasn't like an impetus, like we've, we've always kind of, since we probably hit like year, year two, we've always kind of been expanding. So it was always easier to focus on that. Um, but you, you know, like I said, we had been, we had been doing that talk. We had been talking, we had been doing the research and when we started actually seeing, you know, places getting closed in like Oregon, Washington area, that's when we really kind of ramped up you know, that exploration phase about how do we get this, how do we make this work if this happens in our area? And, you know, it just so happened that it did. And I think, you know, it was maybe a week or two into the pandemic when we, we launched our, our first states in terms of shipping. And by, I would say May-ish, 
I think we had all the states up and going that we could have at the time. That, that, that is really awesome. And, and as we finish out, what, what is everyone's favorite and what are they thinking on these? You know, I've always liked the spyglass, but I'd say the gadget tonight has definitely blown me away. It's, it's really good. Um, doesn't, you know, you really don't taste that 8%. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> it can be deadly. <laughs> the first time I was ever introduced to your beers, I can't remember what I was drinking, but it was one of your higher ABV ones. And I was on my second one and I was like, why, like, why am I like, you're, you're feeling it a little bit. And then I turn it and I, you know, you see that eight, 7% and you're just like amazed that such a crushable beer can taste that, taste that, you know, easy to drink. But I enjoyed the spyglass the most as a key lime, as a key punch. And also Finn's just one of my favorites that you guys do. Obviously it's your classic and probably most well-known one, in my opinion, the best one you do too as well. But tonight, spyglass. Yeah, I was gonna say I like all of them, but I think gadget. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm with their gadget. Is just like and like Kenzie said. I mean, eight percent. It does not drink like that. It is a smooth, easy drink, and you could kind of get yourself in trouble. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if you really want to get yourself in trouble, uh, a, a little ounce, uh, two count of gin in those berry beers, like just really, really nice. If you if you're a fan of gin, and this. A lot of those Midwest fruit tarts work that way, uh, just depending on the spirit. Um, just because if you think of like classic cocktail is going to be sweet, sour, and strong. So you've already kind of got a little bit of that because it's a bigger beer. It's going to have a little bit of residual sweetness and it's, uh, you know, obviously got acidity. So adding that little extra element of strong gets you a, a boiler maker that I think makes a pretty, pretty interesting cocktail. Yeah, absolutely. I never would have even thought of that. And and be, before we let you, you you close out here, Scotty, what what's next for Urban Artifact, and what are you guys hoping to do in twenty twenty one? Yeah, so uh, like I mentioned, we we're undergoing a, an expansion, and this one uh, effectively doubles our capacity. So uh, once once things kind of settled in with the pandemic, we we couldn't keep up, um, and. So we added six 90 barrel tanks, uh, a malt silo, um, and a, I know I'm missing some other small stuff, but also a centrifuge. So uh, that, you know, that's huge for us with, with all the fruit we use, um, not having cans with, with sludge at the bottom or, or kegs with sludge at the bottom. So, you know, it's, it, it's gonna allow us to do even more in terms of kind of what we push like that astronaut food I was mentioning earlier, we wouldn't be able to do without a centrifuge because it's so expensive. It's literally $25 a pound for a freeze dried fruit. Like any, any loss in yield could just devastate the whole, the whole batch. So um, it, it'll allow us to do even more things like Kinsey was, was mentioning things like bananas and uh, mangoes and more starchy fruits. We can, we can really explore those again. Um, because we'll be able to use the centrifuge to kind of spin out enough of the solids so it doesn't pour like um, baby food, basically, and looks like beer. So I, I'm excited that we, we now have that tool to be able to do a lot more things and we have the capacity to keep up a lot more and, and get, get some of those, you know, more limited releases in, in better quantities to, to markets like you know, I can't remember who Kinsey said she moved to Louisville. That's that's a market that we haven't been able to supply since we got into it. And I always feel bad because uh, the reception's always been strong. Um, 
it's just, you know, circumstances uh, precipitated that we, we got a little bit surprised. Yeah, my brewery that I work at here in Louisville, we keep a couple guest taps on. And whenever we don't have a sour, we have one of yours on. And people just say the best things about you all and your beers. Thank you. Have you all ever thought about opening up a, a second location? Uh, it had gotten talked about a long time ago. It's something that I'm not going to say we won't ever do, but it's not, it's not our focus uh, at this point. Uh, I know it's, it's, it's a pretty common thing that we're, that we're seeing in, in, in beer. Um, you know, I guess my personal opinion on, on some of that is I think a lot of breweries tend to do that because it's, it helps make them relevant in an area easier if, if it's, if their brand might not be resonating. Um, but I can tell you that we haven't needed that. Um, you know, we, we ship beer uh, as far North as Minnesota out East to uh, New Hampshire and Massachusetts down to Florida. And without a doubt, we, we stand out and um, you know, we get received and we're not, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing to be a local brand. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, be you and be who you want to be. But uh, we wanted to, to grow into providing sour beer to, to a large, you know, and new audience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we've been able to do that with our brand because of, of what it is and how it speaks to, to a customer base that just otherwise is underserved. Right. Absolutely. Well, well, Scotty, I really appreciate you hopping on flight night for flavorful February. I will get through that hopefully again. <laughs> again, I really appreciate it. Great beer, and I can't wait to to go up to your tap room soon. I appreciate you having me. It was a great time. I'm sad to see flavorful February come to an end, but that was a fun episode. I love the flight nights, and um, I just I just also really love sour beers. So having Urban Artifact on uh, and talking to Scotty was a lot of fun. I really appreciate Kenzie and Derek for hopping on as well and hopefully we'll have another flight night for you coming up here soon uh, we're still finalizing some details there but one thing we're not finalizing but we're getting close to the end of is our monthly giveaway with our drinking buddies club if you haven't signed up yet do so go to any of our social media pages at hop spirits all one word uh, instagram facebook and twitter click the link sign up it takes just but a second to fill out a little bit of information all you need is an email address and you're signed up to win uh our our giveaway every month that we have one this month we're giving away seven different samples of whiskeys that we've had uh, or have featured on the show including cascade moon number two edition uh middle west spirits uh dark pumpernickel whiskey uh, some barrel bourbon as well so a plethora of different styles companies and varieties if you haven't yet go sign up now and then once you're signed up you're signed up and entered in every month it's that simple also don't forget to check out some of our friends like one sip beer review on instagram and dad's on the deck podcast remember if you can give it a try and until next time cheers everyone